Hey there, this is Christian. This is Alexis. And you're listening to Talk History to Me. This is our fourth episode on John Hobalt. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. On May 5, 1961, when Kennedy announced that America would have a man on the moon by the end of the decade, NASA had to scramble to figure out how to make this happen. There were two popular proposals for how to accomplish this. The first one was direct descent, which involved one big-ass rocket that launched directly to the moon and returned back to Earth in the same manner. The second was Earth Orbit Rendezvous, which involved launching multiple rockets in an orbit, creating a space station where astronauts would assemble a spacecraft to send to the moon. There was one more heavily scrutinized proposal, Lunar Orbit Rendezvous, which was spearheaded by John Hobalt. Today, we will tell you the story of John Hobalt and his underdog proposal. In 1961, when Kennedy made the announcement, this wasn't only a shock to Americans, but it was also shocking to NASA. While NASA was in the works to send a man to the moon, they had not previously been warned of the time constraint now publicly placed upon them. With time of the essence, a few ideas for how to get a man to the moon stood out. The first was direct ascent, which is basically as sci-fi as you can get. A huge rocket is launched from the Earth to the moon, and then proceeds to launch from the moon back to the Earth. It's just a straight shot. There were obvious issues, such as the ability to land such a huge rocket and the sheer size the rocket would have to be. This huge new rocket would be the Nova, which was already being talked about, but was far from feasible with the given time frame. I got some fun rocket facts. Talk to me. All right. I'm... Babe, I'm great nice. at listening. <laughs> so Mercury Redstone, I'm, I'm just going to kind of go through a couple um, sizes of these rockets was 80 feet tall, which is 24 meters. The Saturn I was 175 feet tall, so almost or twice as tall, right? Which is 54 meters. The Saturn V, which eventually actually took the astronauts to the moon, was 270 feet tall, which is 82 meters. The Nova would have been comparable in size to the Saturn V. It would have been like 280 or something. And all these measurements are variable depending on what you call the top of the rocket. Anyway, it's not important but it would have over twice the thrust of the Saturn V. So it was a really beefy rocket. In that same spirit of a bitter, bigger rocket mean better, uh, there was a concept called the Sea Dragon, and that would have stood from 480 feet to 650 feet tall, which is 149 meters to nearly 200 meters. It was only ever a concept, but it was, there's a really interesting read in our sources by Aerojet General in the, in the conference. Why would a space rocket be called the Sea Dragon? So... This concept was to have this massive rocket get tugged out 
Um, again, this also has 10 times the thrust of the Saturn V. Anyway, so this big boy is tugged out via aircraft carrier is similar. There's actually like a little photocopy image. If you check out the source, it's hilarious. But they literally have like a black and white photocopy. And it's like an aircraft carrier tugging this massive rocket with airbag ballasts in its nozzle. So it's horizontal. Then when everyone's cleared the area, it actually blows the ballasts or the ballasts deflate. The rocket sinks into the ocean. So that's upright like a buoy kind of thing, Dilio. And then straight up just launches from the sea uh, was the concept for this rocket. That's terrifying. Um, yeah. And it had a whole thing of like having a internal gymnasium. And there's a really, there's really <laughs> cute gra graphics on it. This was like straight up like Starship Enterprise type stuff. Anyway. Damn. Well, aside hard to follow that. That sounds pretty cool. Right. Aside from launching big rockets, what other ways could you get to the moon? Well, let me tell you about Earth Orbit Rendezvous, which I will now refer to as EOR. Uh, this was a more elaborate and involved method than the first one. Multiple Saturn Vs would launch with parts and fuel, and astronauts would assemble these pieces sent to space on a base station that they have up there. Uh, they would assemble a new spacecraft, which would then be sent to the moon. This would all take place, obviously, in Earth's orbit. This proposal gained traction because of the benefits of having a space station would be ideal for future uses. This idea was also strongly supported by Werner von Braun, who was the chief architect of the Saturn V launch vehicle. Also, he supported the other one as well. So he was just a supporter of both of these methods, but I think he kind of ended up jumping on this one a little later. Then there was the third, which was fought for so ferociously and passionately by John Hobalt. Right on. So in 1940, at the age of 21, Hobalt earned his bachelor's degree. And in 1942, his master's. Both these degrees from, were from the University of Illinois, and both of them were in civil engineering. The same year that he graduated with his master's, he joined the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, abbreviated to be NACA. Just so you know, when we cover topics like NASA, there's going to be a lot of TLRs, as they say, three-letter acronyms and other things, so there might be a lot of yada, 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 but NACA, N-A-C-A, and this is the precursor to NASA. And he was, he performed as a assistant civil engineer in the Structures Research Division. After a small period where he served in the Army Air Corps, in 1957, he earned his PhD from the technical sciences while studying aeroelasticity and aerothermodynamics from the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Switzerland. So this study is essentially how plane wings bend whenever you have airflow over them or different speeds, you know, you have turbulence and all this stuff and how does a aircraft body shake and landing, anyway. Not quite space. Um, this entire time, he was actually working with NASA and the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory and teaching courses at the University of Virginia. At Langley, he eventually became the chief of the Dynamics Loads Division. His position continued to evolve, and he switched disciplines to the Theoretical Mechanics Division in 1960. Real quick, the Dynamics Load Division, isn't that where you work? <laughs> I work in the loads and dynamics division, which is, I think it's essentially worth what it's evolved into. Yeah. Anyway, Hobalt was thoroughly convinced that neither direct ascent or EOR was the best option for getting a man to the moon. But every time he pitched his idea of lunar orbit rendezvous, which I will now call LOR, was blown off or quite frankly scrutinized and mocked. While LOR was not his brainchild and was originally concepted many years prior, he truly believed it was the best option. You read a little bit about LOR, right? I did. And just to recap, big rocket, option one. 
E-O-R, you build something in Earth, you send it to the moon. Option two, L-O-R, you go something tiny to the moon, right? And I guess we'll get into more about what it actually was. Anywho, so the concept of L-O-R was discussed by a gentleman by the name of William H. Michael Jr., also played by Bill. And he was another NECA slash NASA engineer who had ideas similar to Hobalt. Michael actually wrote a paper in 1960, independent of Hobalt's talks and Hobalt's ideas, and apparently Hobalt was independent of this guy as well. But it was called the weight advantages of using parking orbit for lunar soft landing mission. Essentially, this parking orbit idea was LOR. But Michael did some very simple calculations. His paper was only two pages long. And he came out to say, you know what? This is going to save the total mission mass of some of the other ideas by 50%. This is extremely advantageous, as every gram committed to orbit comes with a cost. More fun facts. $10,000 per pound to ship on shuttle, which is, you know, the space shuttle. It's kind of 1990s and all that good stuff. And in modern times, it is $43,000 per pound. And I'm sorry, I don't have that in grams. Um, That's a lot of money. So essentially, the more weight that you cut down, it's a lot of cost. There's a lot of energy to huff that stuff up. Damn. Yeah, it's a lot. Anywho, so even Bill wasn't the first guy to come up with this. There are two other gentlemen credited, and that is Yuri Kondrayuk. I might be butchering that. And a British scientist and interplanetary society member, H.E. Ross. Um, Yuri had his paper written in actually 1916 and Ross in 1948. I just want to outline these concepts are very simple. And essentially they said, hey, if you shed a lot of the weight of a rocket, you save a lot of weight. And that might be a better method than just schlepping a massive spacecraft up there. Essentially, like you, you shed these boosters and you only have a tiny little dinghy go out to the moon. That's what these guys are kind of saying. Like, maybe this is a better way of going about it. Anyway. I feel like I should tell them what it is first. <laughs> so LOR was, as you said, it was cheaper, lighter, and required less time. LOR involves two pieces, a small spacecraft and an accompanying lunar lander, which both enter lunar orbit. The larger spacecraft remains in orbit while the lunar lander descends and lands on the moon. The lander stays on the moon for as long as they need to do the thing, and then they re-enter lunar orbit, connect, or rendezvous, with the spacecraft. Once they are docked together, the astronauts board the spacecraft along with any payloads they have, and then the lander actually detaches and is left behind, and that spacecraft takes them back. So to get a little technical, large spacecraft is called the Command and Service Module, CSM, and can hold three astronauts. The lander can hold two astronauts, as one person has to remain in the CSM, and it's called the Lunar Excursion Module, which is LEM. Three guys, two go down to the moon, and then they reconnect. This is obviously pretty scary, because if that rendezvous fails, you're just stranding. Abandoning? Abandoning, they're stranded. (laughs) Two astronauts are now stranded and will not be able... They did. <laughs> Alternatively, if you're wondering, well, aren't you stranded no matter what? If you're doing this in Earth orbit, there's it's easier to say, well, what if you just decay the orbit and then hopefully you have like a re-entry plan for Earth, right? So like it's a very quick to get back home kind of thing where in the moon, ugh, you know, what, what you yeah. get into. They would either die, I think, on re-entry going back to the moon. Yeah, probably. Or... They're just in orbit forever. Until they die. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not the best. So uh, that's why it was pretty scary. 
and obviously it never done, been done before. They hadn't even attempted an EOR at this time, so the fact that they couldn't even do an Earth orbit rendezvous really scared them, and they're like, jump into lunar seems like lunacy. <laughs> They've built bigger rockets before. They haven't done in-space dynamics. Anywho, so in 1960, Dr. Robert C. Siemens became NASA's new associate administrator. As folks do at the administrator level, Dr. Siemens visited all the various centers to present his upcoming vision and outlook to the agency, kind of like a, here's my directive, here's who I am, I'm your new boss kind of thing. Ubal took this opportunity whenever Siemens came to talk at Langley to talk about his ideas for LOR. Interestingly enough, prior to becoming the associate administrator, Dr. Siemens himself worked on a classified military project called Project Saint that involved the interception of satellites while they were in Earth orbit. This was all theory. It wasn't actually performed like you were saying. It had never been done before, but it was essentially a military thing talking about how would you intercept a satellite. I can only imagine that means take it down, but <laughs> I, I don't know. Essentially, it, it, he knew about this concept. He wasn't unfamiliar with it, so whenever... Hobalt came with some zeal and excited and said, hey, this might be a better idea. He was keyed into that world and he knew that kind of language. And so he said, you know what, Hobalt, why don't you give a presentation to my staff at Washington? Three months later, Hobalt and his colleagues got their shot presenting these concepts to Siemens and Kenneth Glenn and Von Braun and the leadership of the Space Task Group, STG. He proudly reached his conclusion that LOR had weight savings of two to two and a half times when compared to other methods. And just to be clear, Hobalt presented multiple methods of reaching the moon. He presented like EOR and he, he, he wasn't just a one trick pony, but he recommended and actually demonstrated through calculations that LOR had significant advantages. Drop the mic, blammo. When he finished his presentation, Max Fadgett, a Langley associate who had been present at multiple private meetings over the past four days, stood up and said, his figures lie, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So to be clear, even by like very mild standards, this is extremely rude because you, when you present to management, you kind of want to have a unified engineering front and it's extremely annoying when you have internal reviews and then no one gives you any kind of feedback and then you present to your boss and then someone says, oh, sorry, I just wanted to chime in this time and I... I think he's an idiot. Anywho, they uh, they took this out into the hallway afterwards, and Fadgett was still complaining and protesting the ideas of LOR and saying that there isn't actually an advantage there. And Hobalt, Hobalt's reply was, Fadgett ought to look at the study before making a pronouncement like that. In another interesting note, a gentleman by the name of Clint Brown also made a presentation which talked about an LOR plan. It was very just high level, not a whole lot of calculations, not very in-depth. And Fadgett was present for that presentation, and he did not give the same amount of fuss. Make of that what you will. So Hobalt was starting to get frustrated that others weren't considering LOR as a legitimate option. True. He tried breaching this topic with his boss and was shot down and quickly dismissed, especially since it wasn't part of his job. <laughs> with this frustration climaxing in November 1961, he wrote a nine-page strongly worded letter a Karen talking to the manager's style letter, if you will, to Dr. Siemens, in which he described himself somewhat as a voice in the wilderness. This letter superseded all chain of command and was a total breach of protocol since he went straight to the top of the hierarchy. In this letter, he addressed this breach and defends it by saying, 
The issues at stake are crucial enough to us all that an unusual course is warranted. He acknowledges that he probably sounds like a crank and understands he could be fired over this, but it was so important that he was willing to lose his job over it. In a documentary called John Hobalt, the engineer who figured out how to put men on the moon, Seaman is actually present and says, it was rather strident in the way it was written. My first reaction was, I'd like some way to get that son of a gun off my back. He then proceeded to tell Holbalt he would make LOR actively considered. On June 7th, 1962, Von Braun made a famous talk in which he unexpectedly endorsed LOR, and this stance was crucial to the success of Apollo. LOR became the agreed-upon method of getting men to the moon. In an interview, Holbalt said, it actually turned into a 2.5-year fight to convince people because they wouldn't even listen to it. Why was there so much resistance to it? That's a good question, and the only thing I can come up with is the syndrome of NIH. Not invented here. When the launch happened, Hobalt was invited to watch in Houston, and he later recounted, When the landing took place and touchdown was made, all of us stood up and started clapping. Von Braun sat in front of me, and he did the OK sign and said, Thank you, John. That was one of the biggest rewards I've ever had. So cute. They were like enemies because, you know, Von Braun was a little bit of a dick to him for some time. Uh, Hobalt actually had ended up leaving NASA in 1963 and started consulting for Aeronautical Research Associates of Princeton, Inc. And in 1976, he returned to NASA Langley and worked as chief aeronautical scientist until he retired in 1985. In his life, Hobalt received the NASA Exceptional Scientific Achievement Medal an honorary doctorate from the University of Illinois, and had the leading road to Illinois' Jolette Junior College named after him. That's John Hobalt. It's also very interesting because Russia was the first one to do manned spaceflight, right? Correct. Yuri Gagarin. And it's actually unfortunate because America scrubbed a flight shortly before that, and had they not scrubbed that flight, they would have been the first ones. So that's just a little fun that's fact fun for you. Fact. I know John Hobalt later in his life, and he, he was constantly involved with aerosciences and aeronautics and space research and all that good stuff. Um, I know he was a consultant for the B-2 stealth bomber, which is another fun fact. I mean, he, he was really involved. He became a pretty prestigious career. Um, there's a great Audible book that I listened to about this. It's called The Man Who Knew the Way to the Moon by Todd Zwillick. I found it very interesting. That's actually where I heard about Hobalt for the first time because he doesn't really get the recognition he deserves. There's been many sources who say if it hadn't been for him being so persistent, we probably would not have actually accomplished sending men to the moon within the 60s. So pretty impressive like he really is like an undersunk kind of hero thank y'all so much for listening uh don't forget to give us a rating like subscribe to us follow us on spotify i don't know how this is done i don't want to do it our intro song is talk to me by hank honey he is absolutely incredible be sure to look him up on social media or listen to him on spotify google play apple music or wherever you listen to music